Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder. We talk closer to home with the NDP government here in B.C. set to replace the chronically congested and clogged Massey Tunnel. Let's check in with B.C. Transportation Minister Rob Fleming. Minister, thanks a lot for coming on this morning. My pleasure, Mike. Good to be with you. Okay, so let's talk about some of the uh, the first contracts that have now been signed for this project for just over $4 billion for a new eight-lane tunnel to replace the current tunnel what can you what can you tell us about that yeah we've secured uh, contracts for uh, the design of the immersed tube tunnel for the highway and civil works um, environmental services the archaeology that will be necessary for the project some of the river hydraulic uh, work that, that needs to be done so basically getting everything in line get through the environmental assessment process get to a fully designed project get to the market and get to construction that's that's the um the update from yesterday, although I would say that uh, people are probably noticing right now that there is a uh, bus on shoulder lane improvement uh, being completed on the south side of the tunnel so that uh, transit service will flow uh, better and it'll reduce congestion for everyone. And uh, we'll start this year on a brand new interchange uh, for Steveston. So uh, from going from two lanes to five lanes. That is going to help what, in the intermediate period. What can you say to people who are stuck in that traffic congestion every day at that Massey Tunnel who must be kicking themselves thinking, man, that bridge could have been opening like right now if you had not cancelled the bridge that the previous Liberal government wanted to build and actually started work on. It would be opening now instead of waiting until 2030 for this tunnel. Well, I'd say a couple of things. One, they have to suspend belief that that would have been the case because, of course, Christy Clark uh, lost government in July 2017 after promising in a, in a throne speech uh, that they were going to hit the pause button. So either she wasn't telling the truth then or, or they were going to do that and they were going to actually listen to the region. We, we promised that we would listen to the region. We worked with the mayors of uh, Richmond and Delta, Metro Vancouver, with the Sawasan and Musqueam First Nations, and built a consensus around the project the region wanted. So we're going to get the right region. I would also say that, you know, people that are stuck in congestion, um, we want to relieve that. That's why we're getting started right now. We have a first phase of the project going. But also, we don't want to, we don't want to take money out of your pocket each and every day, every week, every month, every year for 40 years. That, that's how the financial model of the previous government worked on the mega bridge was that it was toll toll bridge and yeah it's a couple thousand bucks a year for every family and uh, we think that that kind of geographical tax that targets people who live south of the fraser is is wrong okay let me ask you about the comments made this week by the new newly installed liberal leader kevin falcon he was a guest on the show here earlier this week i asked him about the massey tunnel he's been very very critical of your plan to build a new tunnel and scrapping the bridge that the Liberals wanted to build. He doesn't think that this tunnel will get built at all. Here's what he had to say to me, and I'll get your thoughts. Kevin Falcon. They want to do this crazy idea with the tunnel. They're going to be stuck in the environmental assessment process for the next five years. Nothing will have gotten done. That's why I'm going to go back to the bridge idea. We can dust off the old plans, update them, and get that thing built. 
Okay, what do you say to that? Well, I say that uh, if anybody is stuck in congestion uh, and uh, encouraged that there's now a project underway listening to the new opposition leader say that he's going to rip it up, should he become premier in two and a half years from now, should be really concerned. Um, not only uh, he's ba- basically the saying, sunk cost. He's saying he's going to do the same thing you guys did. I mean, they started building well, the bridge and you guys ripped it up. Well, we, 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 we said that we were going to evaluate that bridge. It was a controversial project, let's let's yeah. be clear. Uh, and, uh, you know, um, I've been on your colleague's show, Jazz Johal, and I'm, I'm glad to see him back in journalism, but he used to sit in the house and he doesn't. Um, <laughs> okay, well, okay. Um, you think, when he says that he thinks that this thing will be stuck in environmental red tape and reviews for years and it won't get built, what do you say to that? And I think it's a legitimate concern and question to raise when you're talking about putting a concrete tube and sinking it to the bottom of that river uh, in a river with threatened migrating salmon and, and sturgeon and all the other environmental considerations that are putting a, a tunnel in that river. How are you going to yeah. do that and get that approved environmentally? I think the EA process has been significantly improved with us. Uh, first of all, in, tr- in order to make sure the project has social license throughout, we have a, a stage of uh, intermediate of indigenous involvement. Um, but also, immersed tube tunnel technology is used throughout the world, Mike, in Asia and Europe, in places that have very strict environmental regimes like like we do, and um, and it's a it's a it's a trusted known. Uh, proven technology, um, and in fact, one we've obviously had since 1959 on the on the current crossing. So, right. interesting though that Kevin Falcon was in favor of keeping the 1959 tunnel for another 50 years. Then he said, "Twin it," and now he's saying, uh, "Rip up a new tunnel." So, um, I don't know what he'll say next week. Okay, Rob, thank you for coming on today. Appreciate it. Okay, Mike, thanks very uh, much. Uh- All right, welcome back to the show as we continue talking about the clogged Massey Tunnel, the plan to replace it with another tunnel. You heard my conversation there with the Transportation Minister. Lots of calls on this one. Let's quickly check in with Ian Payton, Liberal MLA, Delta South. Ian, thanks for coming on. Good morning, Mike. Thank you. Okay, well, thanks a lot for coming. What do you think about the government's determination here to build this new tunnel? Well, you know, it... They haven't done anything in five years. Uh, You know, they killed the project in basically June of 2017. Nothing's happened. So all they're doing, there's no money in the budget. They haven't made a deal with the federal government to fund this new tunnel. So where's the money coming from? All they're doing is adding a bit of fluff and foo-foo dust right now for $56 million to say, well, we're doing a few things. We're checking into some consultations, some more studies, etc. Um, but there's no, there's no timeline whatsoever or no funding available whatsoever to see this, this tunnel actually get built. Okay, let's take some calls here in the open line and see what people think about it right now. Ryan on the line in Langley. Hi, Ryan. Go ahead. Yeah, good morning, Michael. I, I just My take on the reason that the uh, NDP canceled the bridge, which I think was a terrible mistake, is uh, I think it's part of their scheme to, uh, under the CBAs to, to funnel the work to the building trades. I think it's a, it's a kickback to them. Um, the bridge that was underway, uh, you know, at that point hadn't been awarded to any building trade contractors, but may have gone that way. But anyway, I, I think this is part of an asinine scheme to, uh, to funnel work to the building trades. Okay, what it, thank you for that, Ian Payton. Have, has the government indicated it'll be a, a union-only project? I mean, certainly it will be. Well, we, we would assume so. Under their uh, CBA with um, the unions, it's yeah. adding 
tremendous cost to any projects that are happening. And by the way, in five years of the NDP being in government, somebody show me any project, any infrastructure that's actually been built in this province in five years. I mean, this, this, this tunnel thing is a joke. It's looking like 2030 at the earliest. There's no funding for it. The budget, will, the, we'll see next week, Mike, when the budget comes down over here in Victoria, the legislature, if there's anything in that budget for this George Massey tunnel. Well, what, what, do you mean, what do you mean there's no funding for it? I mean, this is uh, money's no object these days. I mean, they just rack up the deficit. They've got lots of money. Well, I guess so. I mean, that's one thing they're good at is is racking up the deficit. That's that's certainly for sure. But, you know, from what I've gathered, uh, you know, talking to our federal MP from Delta, there's no deal has been made yet with the federal government for for, uh, cross-funding for this tunnel. Let's go to Chris on the line in Burnaby. Hi, Chris. What do you think? Hey, Mike. Hey, Mike. Thanks for taking my call. Um, I'm Team Liberal, but the problem is, is that these people are using us as pawns in order to keep getting votes in. So why can't they all just sit down, take party, uh, <clears throat> put parties aside, and just actually talk about like this like human beings? Build the tunnel or bridge, it doesn't matter. Do the Patello, do everything that needs to be done in one big shot. Come to some sort of 20-year agreement for the money. It's, it, whatever has to be done, just build okay. it. Stop Ian, playing games. Ian Payton, what do you say to that? Well, I mean, what do I, what do I say to that? We, we're, we firmly believe that it was so obvious, like, that the tunnel was on, the bridge was on its way, I'm sorry. There was $100 million spent by the B.C. Liberal government preparing for that tunnel. There was piles being driven. There was, there was preload on the side of the highways. There was hydro lines and infrastructure being moved for this new bridge. I mean, $100 million had already been spent. That got thrown out the window. Now they're starting all over again five years later from scratch. And, uh, Mike, we would have been having a grand opening ceremony this summer to open the new bridge if they'd have continued on with it. Okay, he told he expressed some doubt on that when I was speaking to the transportation minister, Rob Fleming. He said he doubted that it would have been built this year because Christy Clark wanted to put a pause on it. Is that uh, true? I, I, I don't buy into that whatsoever. I mean, okay. uh, honestly, Mike, I had companies, big, big companies that had contracts uh, preparing to build that bridge that were in my office in Ladner, uh, absolutely distraught that the contract had been killed by the NDP. Let's go. It's back to the phone lines. Al in Surrey. Hi, Al. Go ahead. Okay. Time to get technical. Fifteen years ago, approximately, I went to a public meeting, talked to an engineer about building the bridge and or tunnel. They said, he said that the soil was not suitable for 300 feet, so you would have to pile uh, uh, drive-in piles 100 feet deep under a bridge or tunnel. If we had an earthquake, uh, 0.5 or 6, try driving piles right across the Fraser River if you're putting a tunnel in. It'll never happen. Okay, Ian Payton. Well, uh, I'm sorry, sir, but... (laughs) Bridges have been built all over the world in soils exactly the same as Richmond and Delta. I mean, any engineer will tell you they were in the process of building it. Do you think they're going to build a bridge with piles thinking the bridge might fail? Um, they're called friction piles, Mike, and they get down. They don't have to go down all that far, but they're so tightly 
piled together. They're called friction piles, and that's what supports bridges all over the world. Right, right. So when people say that there's a lot of soft shifting sand there that you can't you can't build that bridge, you're saying they've studied it and they can they can get the bridge built on that land. Oh, absolutely. Okay, all okay. over the world, China, Asia, there's bridges in the exact same type of soils that have been built. Okay, Jeremy on the line in Abbotsford. Hi, Jeremy. Hey, Mike, thanks for taking my call. Sure. I think uh, you're one of the greater uh, broadcasters on that station, but you and the media have to remind Rob Fleming and this guy with his dippity do hair gel haircut, you got to hold them to account <laughs> on that. Like the guy mentioned here, the $100 million in preload, they tossed away our taxpayers' money like it's nothing. And I'm tired of these uh, governments, especially the NDP. Like you said, nothing's done in five years. And they are using all these five-year terms to... to uh, to poach elections and votes. Highway 1 has been used for two provincial elections and Justin Trudeau's last uh, federal election. The sign is still there at 264th. The highway hasn't even been started. And I'm not okay. NDP or Liberal. I can be bought, but let's add two <laughs> lanes to the highway. Let's put a bridge on the tunnel, and I will vote for whoever does that. Okay, the thank problem. you for the call. Well, I did put to the minister there that they had started the preliminary construction on the bridge idea, and then canceled it i think it was what is a hundred million dollars was spent ian on the preliminary work on the bridge right absolutely mike yeah. and you know mike listen i i'm a farmer i've grown up third generation farmers and we save every penny we do things correctly everything's common sense like i can't i, I it blows me away in politics when i see taxpayers money wasted and a hundred million dollars was thrown out the window uh, preparing to build this bridge you know, we had a we had an estimate of 3.5 billion to complete the new bridge with highway widening, new crossings, interchanges, yeah. stuff like that. The winning bid came in at 2.6 billion, so there was a 900 million dollar saving, and the bridge would okay. have been open this coming summer. And these guys are now looking at 4.1 billion for this tunnel, and it'll probably go over 5 billion. Thanks for coming on today. Appreciate it. Anytime, Mike. Thank uh, you. Mike. All right, welcome back to the show. Let's talk about housing affordability in British Columbia right now, or lack thereof. Prices continue to soar ever higher. Even areas once considered to be affordable, like the Fraser Valley, seeing massive record high price hikes. How do we solve this? Well, how about densification? Build more homes on our limited land base especially in neighborhoods that are currently zoned for detached single-family homes. That's the argument that's just out from my guest, Mark Lee, Senior Economist, Canadian Centre for Policy Alternatives. I'm pleased to welcome him back to the show. Mark, thanks for coming on. No problem. How are you doing, Mike? I'm doing great. Thanks for doing this once again. Also on the line is Paul Sullivan. Uh, Paul is with the Business Tax Alliance, and I'm pleased to welcome him, him back as well. Hey, Paul. Good morning. Okay, thank you, gentlemen, for doing this once again. Mark, let me go to you first. Tell me about the report you have out today and the way forward here to affordable housing. Your thoughts? Yeah, I mean, well, we've been on the show before. We've talked about a number of different dimensions of housing, and the last time we got into the issue around taxation, uh, this one is more around density and the, the supply of future housing. Uh, it's not the only solution, but I think it's a really big part of the equation uh, because basically to you know buy a single-family house in the city of Vancouver, you need an income of like $300,000. So obviously that's not going to work for the vast majority of people out there. Um, uh, the, the topic of upzoning is what I'm 
uh, putting on the table in my uh, latest research paper, basically adding a lot more of what they call the, the missing middle in housing, sort of in between large condo towers on one hand and detached housing on the other. So townhouses, row housing, uh, multiplexes, up to small apartment buildings, and sort of allowing that essentially across uh, the, the entire region. Uh, right. and I think this just would make housing much more accessible. Like right now, like 80% of the land is taken up by about 30% of households. So we want to open that up. Right. So instead of the traditional detached home that everyone used to dream of living in and purchasing, you what, what would you do? Phase those out? So in like neighborhoods that are currently zoned for detached single family homes, you would change the zoning there and, and allow densification, what, for townhouses, row houses, condos? Yeah, I mean, all, all of those things are, are options. I think the in the city of Vancouver, um, they recently passed uh, a pilot program called Making Home, uh, which is the idea is you'd have six units on a standard lot. Uh, currently, you're allowed basically four units. You can have a duplex, and each can have a secondary suite. Uh, but the, still, the, the total amount of buildable area has remained the same. So if you're going to go up to six units, then you need to allow uh, more space to be built uh, to accommodate um, uh, those, those folks. So okay. there's a number of different ways that you can do this, but I think the core idea is just you know opening up the city uh, so that we can have uh, more people living, especially in those neighborhoods where the schools are underpopulated, um, you know, where, where there's closer access to uh, uh, shopping and public services and jobs. Um, you know, all of those things, I think, reinforce not just affordability, but also our objectives to be a okay. low-carbon city. Okay, Paul Sullivan, your thoughts? Are you on board with this idea? Well, I mean, I think Mark and I are on board with, with, with supply, and that, that's what, what we're hearing about. It's just the type of supply that I don't think we're going to agree on. I, I just don't see Kennedy Stewart's proposal working. Um, you know, he talks talked yesterday about homes of six to $800,000, so a $700,000 home you need an income of $235,000 to qualify for a mortgage, three times gross income. That's the standard qualification metrics for, for getting a mortgage. So if it's a $700,000 home that people are seeking, that's what we're talking about here. And, and worse than that, I mean, if you look at the cost of building today, costs are through the roof. And if you look at the cost of construction, a $700,000 home is going to be 600 square feet. And we're going to have six 600-square-foot homes on a single-family lot. I just don't think it's what people want. So you can't just put ideas out there without doing the math, and the math doesn't work on this. What's one. a better idea? How could we build stuff that people can actually afford to buy? We need density on transportation thoroughfares. We need infrastructure that's going to support that development. We need the, the transport that's going to move those people around our, our, our communities. And, you know, you're not going to get the supply in the single-family homes. We need, we need big density. We way underzone Canby Corridor. We're about to underzone the, the Broadway Corridor. We need to go higher, bigger, large, you know, more units. We, we, you start to get into a single-family neighborhood and tell people that you want to rezone their single-family homes to allow six, 600-square-foot units, it's going yeah. to be a five-year experiment before we even get a single unit built. It's just not going to meet the demand. Okay, Mark Lee, your thoughts? Well, I mean, I think we need to open up the 80% of the land where 30% of the households live. 
Uh, I think some homeowners are not going to be happy with that, but I think there's a lot of uh, uh, senior couples, for example, who would like to the opportunity to stay on the land that they've been on for a couple decades, be able to redevelop that land and maybe provide a unit to one of their kids uh, and rent out the other ones. Uh, I think the economics can work. I mean, that's basically what I did in the paper was to crunch the numbers on all of these different options. And I think right now we have a system where we've been concentrating all of the density on those main streets and the transit hubs, as Paul was suggesting. What? Uh, we need to open up the rest of the city. Okay, what about, okay, the economics of this is one thing, but what about the local politics of it? Like you mentioned that there will be some people in these single-family neighborhoods who won't be uh, very happy with the idea of uh, row houses or townhouses moving next door to them. I think that's understating it. Like a, a lot of people said, this is this is my home. This is our neighborhood. We want to preserve the character of the neighborhood, as it's often as it's often said. And you will have local politicians who will do their bidding and say, "Look, we're not going to we're not going to upzone these single family neighborhoods." How do you get over that local politics or the nimbyism, Mark? Yeah, well, I think in part of it is uh, allowing housing development that's more in this missing middle terrain so that it fits in with the neighborhood better. Part of it is allowing um, like owner occupiers to redevelop their land in a way that's going to work for them. And I think there's another layer here, which is that I think the BC government should be stepping in to try to in- impose this type of framework around the yeah. region because it's not just about what you as a single family homeowner want and trying to, you know, preserve your neighborhood in Amber. We have a dynamic city. We have a growing population. Uh, and right now those homes are not affordable to the vast, vast okay. majority of people in the region. Paul Sullivan, your thoughts. Yeah. I mean, you've, you've already heard my comments on this being a no less than five year experiment. I mean, NIMBYism exists everywhere, but you start to wade into this type of development form uh, it's probably going to be more than five years before we build a, a single housing unit. I mean, look at laneway housing. I, I, I'm not opposed yeah. to laneway housing. It, it was a step into this territory. Um, but guess what? Hardly anybody's building them. I mean, there's a few around. It's hardly solving the housing crisis. Why, why, are, why is no one building them? Because of all the red tape and hassle? It's a complete hassle. It takes yeah. a couple of years just a regular outright building permit. And then, then as soon as you do get that permit, it's the economics because home builders need to, need to break even or got, got, you know, make a profit. And you, you, you don't make a margin on building that laneway house. It actually could devalue the property. So the same principles apply here. And yet I have someone like Kennedy Stewart saying, well, we're going to grab a land lift and take that money. There is no land lift. There's probably a degradation of land value. And you're going to see house prices go up because nobody's going to build these. Hey, Paul, what about the idea, and you heard Mark touch on this briefly, that if you have local governments that are resistant to densification, they want to preserve the neighborhoods they have, they're they're listening to their, their voters in their in their neighborhoods that don't want densification or townhouses or row houses in their neighborhood, that what you have to do in that case is you have a provincial government with some jam and with some political courage to bring the hammer down and and make it happen. Is that possible? I mean, I've heard people say that, but I've never seen it done. But your thoughts? 
uh, we need to set quotas. I mean, we have a labyrinth of, of approval processes to get a building permit in, in any municipality. Some are better than others. But, you know, I need to pass my environmental test, my, 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 my heating, my, my, my landscaping, my design. Everything requires approval now. And so you go through 10 hoops rather than two. So you put a quota in each department per month, per quarter. They meet those quarters or they meet those quotas or they lose their funding. All right, talking affordable housing with my guests, Mark Lee, Canadian Centre for Policy Alternatives, Paul Sullivan, Business Tax Alliance. Lots of calls on this one. Dave in Maple Ridge. Dave, go ahead. Yeah, hi, guys. Yeah, it's funny you brought us up. But last week, my wife and I, we were thinking about maybe selling our house and moving out to the valley. We took a drive out to Chilliwack, and we were shocked in what we saw out there. I mean, especially up South Promontory Road. They got one road going in. You talk about density. They are density up there. They are squeezing houses in where you wouldn't believe. The streets must be about 12 feet wide. If you have a trailer, forget about it. Um, I don't, and they're out with suites because obviously people can't afford to get in the market without that. I understand that. I feel bad for people now. I feel bad for my kids, to tell you the truth. Yeah. And I'm just shocked at the density out there and the way these homes are being squeezed in. And they're starting from 1.3 to 1.6 million. It's just unbelievable. I mean, if anyone's a shock, take a drive out to Chilliwack and see what's going on. I just, I, you know what? I think we're in a crisis. This, our real estate is in a crisis, and I don't know what, what can be done. Density would be nice in a perfect world, but I think it's too late. I think the government has to step in and do something. Okay, pa- Paul Sullivan, do you have any thoughts on that? Well, I mean, yeah, it's not helpful at 1.3, 1.5 million dollar houses, and people can't afford that. That's not the the market we're trying to serve. We we need to create tax rebates, incentives, low interest loans, development of public land. We need to put all the incentive programs in place to get things going, including a rapid approval process at municipal halls. Mark's plan of taxation and and, and charging the homeowners to, to, to pay for development. It just doesn't work. We have no shortage of taxes. We have a shortage of homes. We need to get into the incentive program to get supply going. Okay, Mark, that, that goes back to your proposal for a tax on million-dollar homes, use the money to build affordable housing. How do you respond to Paul on that? Well, I mean, we agree that there's a housing crisis. Uh, housing's unaffordable to um to, to most people. So how does government step in to do that? Well, one of the ta- things we've been talking about is uh, changing the regulations so that we can allow more supply and more supply in uh, desirable areas uh, of the city. Um, Paul, I agree with Paul that we should be making more public land available, particularly to nonprofits to build genuinely affordable housing. And I think we need progressive property taxation to uh, incentivize density, to rebalance some of the inequities in the housing system and to be a source of revenue to acquire okay. that public land. So it's a multifaceted uh, problem and then there's multifaceted solutions. Okay, squeeze in another couple of calls here. Let me, let me squeeze a call in here, Paul. Let's go to Randy in Kelowna. Hi, Randy. Go ahead. Hi there. I'm a landlord. I've got uh, several properties that I've rented. And I've been a landlord for 40 years. What I never hear being talked about is the support for landlords on the landlord. On the We always talk about the demand side, but the supply side. How do we create more people to become landlords and create a small supply of uh, residential rentals? You know, I believe in the Rentalsman's Act. It's a, it's a good book to go by, but at the end of the day, 
what tools do the, do the government have in their toolbox to either okay. reduce municipal taxes, reduce the capital gains exemption taxes, and try to get the private sector to step up a little bit. Because as a landlord, I've got friends, and myself included, that are getting out of the business and depleting the re- uh, residential uh, rentals because the rules are so restrictive. Okay. Paul Sullivan, do you have any thoughts on that? Yeah, for sure I do. I mean, you've got to look at the, the risk that's involved in development. It costs hundreds of millions of dollars to build a large rental building. The difference between a condo building and a rental building is you're asking the developer to hold the product. So they're building not for uh, getting out of a development in two or three years' time. They're, ho- they're going to hold this for 10, 15, 20 years' time. And so you need to have all of the right incentive programs in place to make that happen in a high val- land value marketplace. But more importantly, you need to have stable government policy. When the government keep change, keeps changing the policy on, on rental change and, and policies against, you know, uh, upgrades and conversions, I mean, I'm, I, I support a lot of them, but there's yeah. no stability in the landlord side. So this caller okay. has a very good point they're making. Okay, we just got 30 seconds left. Mark, I'll give you the final word if you want to sum up there. Yeah, I mean, on the rental stuff, uh, we need to have more density, more rental apartments in those single-family housing neighborhoods. Uh, having more density will uh, make the economics work at market rent. Okay. We can do other things like eliminating the GST on new rental accommodations, and we're providing low-interest loans to the federal government and D.C. government. Okay. So I think a lot of the deals are in place for that. All right, welcome back to the show, and here we go now with our great World Cup debate. Should Vancouver bid for World Cup soccer games in 2026 what an interesting and winding road this has been for vancouver and the world cup of soccer now remember let's go back in time here let's go back to 2018 when the idea was first hatched here for north america to host the world cup of soccer remember what the bc government said at that time they said they want no part of this they were worried it would be too expensive for bc taxpayers they were concerned about the demands from fifa the world soccer governing body let's go back here to 2018 now this is you'll hear tourism minister lisa bear here ruling out uh, going for world cup soccer back then here's what she said back then Well, there's very large concerns uh, with the bid, Uh, one of them being uh, the ability for FIFA to unilaterally change the stadium agreement at any point. That adds unknown costs and unknown risks to the BC taxpayers. Uh, We as a province own BC Place, and so we are responsible for the stadium agreement, and we're not willing to put BC uh, taxpayers on the hook for unknown costs. Okay, now that was then. That was then, back in 2018. The government wanted no part of the World Cup. They've done a total 180 here now. Premier John Horgan, he's gung-ho here for this now. He wants the World Cup in Vancouver in 2026. Here's what Horgan says about it now. We have uh, a need to attract people back to British Columbia for our tourism industry, for our hospitality sector. And the prospect of events, whether it be FIFA, whether it be the Invictus Games, which is very much in play as well. Uh, for British Columbia in the years ahead, and uh, the Indigenous-led movement to see uh, the 2030 Olympic bid come back to Vancouver Whistler are all things that we're happy to entertain. 
Okay, he wants it all now. The Olympics, the World Cup, bring it all on. All right, let's discuss now. Should Vancouver go for this, the 2026 World Cup, and stage the games here? What a great panel we've assembled for you on this. Blake Price on the line, former TSN Sports Center anchor. He's the co-host of Sakaris and Price, very popular sports talk radio host. Hey, Blake. How are you doing? I'm doing great, Blake. Thanks a lot for doing this. Also on the line is Stuart Parker from the Eco-Socialists of BC. He's a former leader of the BC Green Party. I'm very pleased to welcome him back, too. Hi, Stuart. Yeah, it's great to be back, Mike. Thanks for uh, having me on. You bet. Thank you, guys, to both of you. Blake Price, let me go to you first. Do you think BC should go for this? This is a good idea? Go for the World Cup? You know, never has it made more sense for for this province and for this city, given where we are in the pandemic, given where the tourism and hospitality sector is uh, post-pandemic. And, hey, in a worst-case scenario, there's still a lot of modeling that suggests this pandemic is going to last, you know, upwards of a couple more years, really, of managing it in some way, shape, or form, with tourism probably at a, at a muffled level. So by the time this rolls around to 2026, uh, to borrow a phrase here that is uh, – uh, relevant, it'll be a booster shot. It, it'll be exactly what this province and city needs to uh, to get back on its feet and fuel the tourism sector. Okay, Stuart Parker, where do you stand on it? Well, I don't think, if we manage to get our COVID situation under control by 2026, um, planes are going to be packed anyway. Trains are going to be packed anyway. People have really itchy feet right now. They're sick of not being able to visit their friends. They're sick of not being able to visit their relatives. Um, once this becomes an advisable, once this scale of gathering becomes advisable, I think Vancouver will be deluged in tourists regardless. I think the idea that there's going to be some post-COVID hangover where people st- continue not traveling is... Um, it's unsupported. It's unsupported by the data from how people are behaving even now. Anytime people could get permission to visit BC, enjoy BC, enjoy the various locations in the province, we've seen people going to great effort and really skirting the edges of public health guidelines to keep coming here. So, so I think this idea of this post-COVID law, I don't think it's realistic. So you therefore think that, well, we don't need the World Cup as a tourism boost? No, I don't think we do. I think that as any traditional tourist destination, we're already going to be highly sought after. So I'd rather see this money invested in giving uh, in soccer for kids, in amateur sport facilities that we're horribly behind on in places like Surrey. Kids are practicing for the for sports at 10 o'clock at night. We're so short of ice and grass and the things okay. we need. That's where we need to invest. Okay, Blake, let me ask you about the, the potential for Vancouver to get on board with this and potentially host some World Cup games in 2026 at BC Place Stadium. Obviously, there's going to be a cost to the taxpayer to stage this. It's really unclear. I tried to get some answers out of the government yesterday. How much would this cost taxpayers? There is no answer to that question, but it would appear to be millions of dollars. You're going to have to have... Uh, a, a grass field, a temporary real grass field in BC Place Stadium. FIFA had earlier demanded a separate power supply for BC Place Stadium, a separate power grid in case the first one goes down during a, a game that's being broadcast around the world. Security, that's another one. This is going to cost a lot of money. Do you think it's worth it? 
Well, the economic impact is estimated to be around 700 million U.S. dollars for the uh, for the region. Taxpayers will be on the hook for probably around 50 or even less than that uh, in the end. Remember, the document that circulated that uh, got a lot of people all riled up. That's the leaping off point. Uh, FIFA, like the IOC, like a lot of these. You know, they don't have hard and fast rules. It's not their way or the highway. It's a negotiation every single place they, they go. That was the leaping off point. That's what people didn't understand, particularly members of government at the time, that that's what had to be and that it was that or nothing. And they didn't they didn't have the savvy to know that there was a negotiation that was involved there and that they could negotiate certain parts. And you talk about, you know, Fields and Surrey, build that in. Say, yeah, you can do this, but we need a uh, we need a certain amount of money and proceeds to go to this and that. And it's a negotiation and they need to be savvy enough to navigate their way through this. Hey, if the province is going to be in the business of operating a 50,000 seat stadium, then they have to be in the business of welcoming events that put 50,000 butts in seats. What is the point of renovating that stadium to the point that they did after the Olympics? Remember, a lot of those renovations happened after 2010. So we put right. that roof on the stadium for exactly what reason then? And the province refuses to sell the stadium. The province refuses to put a, a naming rights on there to recoup some costs there. So if they're going to be in this business and they refuse to not be in this business by virtue of selling it, then they have to welcome events that fill that building. Okay. The boat show is not what BC Play Stadium is for. <laughs> Big events are for that stadium. Stuart Parker, what do you say to that? Well, uh, look, Francois Legault and his government were in the consortium that did the Canada bid. They were in negotiations for three years. And they and Montreal finally walked out. Right. That Montreal, you know, that uh, that the province of Quebec went, all right, that's enough. This is not a thing we're going to get a good deal on for taxpayers. We won't be able to control the costs. All the things that Francois Legault said last year are still true this year. So somebody who was right up front negotiating, right, a government that remembered the huge Olympics overruns, that remembered the huge expo overruns. They looked at this and they went, there's another one of these things coming. So they I don't have a venue. Though. They, we, don't, they don't have a venue. Go, go well, ahead, Blake. What do you want to say there? Go this ahead. Is a, this, is a, this is a sunk, but you're making a sunk cost fallacy argument here, right? Like the fact that we have this white elephant is now the reason to get ourselves further into debt. I mean, this is nuts given the amount of debt we're building up during COVID, and we want to spend money to borrow to deal with a tourism problem that is highly unlikely to even appear. Okay, um, the go, the Olympic Stadium in Montreal. Go ahead, go ahead, Blake. White elephant. BC Blake. Place just got renovated. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, it's white elephant infrastructure. We have upgraded it absolutely. But look, the fact that we have already perhaps misspent money by doing that doesn't mean we should misspend more. The province is on the hook for 100% of the security costs, according to this. Now, when we had the Olympics, security was one-third of the total operating budget. Um, So we could be looking at very, very serious liability at the same time as we're trying to walk off over $10 billion in COVID debt. All right, welcome back to the show as we continue debating the World Cup for Vancouver. The 2026 World Cup of Soccer, should Vancouver bid to host games? My guests are Blake Price and Stuart Parker. Let's go to your phone calls here. Brian and Coquitlam. Hi, Brian. What do you think? Hey, Mike. Um, I just want to say that I don't think it's fair to compare the cost of security with the Olympics and the World Cup. They are completely two different things. 
when we had the Olympics here, you're talking about venues all over multiple cities, uh, between Whistler to Richmond to Vancouver, and sports every day for two months or for a month. We're we're comparing it to uh, one venue, BC Place, and five maybe five games played over the course of yeah. a, a couple months. It's, okay. it's not even a comparison. Blake Blake Price, how much would the security cost? Do we know? I don't have that exactly, but he took the words right out of my mouth. That's exactly the case. A far easier task of securing one venue uh, and maybe a fan zone attached to it than it is uh, all of the different venues. Um, you know, it's, uh, you know, it, it, and also when I say the 50 million, which the security would be built into that to some degree, um, that's not at one check. You know, the, nobody's asking the, you know, one check worth 50 million. That'll be spread out over a bunch of different budgets. It's a layaway plan, if you will. And you think about all the visitors that are coming in paying PST with every single thing that they pay, uh, pay for. The PST by the visitors will cover the 50 million easily. Okay, let's go to James on the line of White Rock. Hi, James. Go ahead. Uh, thanks for taking my call. I just have a curiosity question. Are the Olympics from 12 years ago paid off yet? And if they're not, why are we even considering getting into debt for the taxpayers to support the Fairmont and all these monster corporations so they can make money after they got subsidized by the government for their payroll and everything else through COVID? It's absolutely ridiculous to ask the the taxpayers of British Columbia to keep on adding up consumable debt that won't be paid off for generations so that... Oregon and the NDP can put a feather in their cap. Okay, well, the the organizers of the 2010 Olympics say it broke even, but Stuart Parker, are you buying that? Uh, No, absolutely not. I mean, the uh, of course, if you exclude almost all the infrastructure and you in the convention center and the security, it broke even. But that's just creative accounting. That's not the reality in which we live. No, there's plenty of Olympic debt left. And piled on top of that debt is the COVID debt. But at the same time, right, I'm not against spending money on sport. I think we really need to do more to spend money on amateur sport. But rather than overheating um, the most congested, the most expensive real estate region of the entire lower mainland, we should be looking at building community facilities to meet the needs of the kids who are growing up all over Metro Vancouver. We need to be looking at eliminating user fees for kids to join sports teams. Because as we know, it's cheaper to go to a party at a gang member's house than it is to go to <laughs> soccer practice or hockey Okay, Blake, practice. Blake, what do you there say to that? of things that we can invest in. Blake, go yeah, ahead. By, by, by all means, uh, you know, add a add a ticket surtax that goes to to building to build that in. I mean, uh, but again, comparing but Olympics to World Cup work. Yeah, it is there's actually. There's no example of it ever working that way. Well, we know how these things and work. FIFA have got I mean, look at look hang, hang on, guys, 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 guys. I'm going to insist you don't talk over each other. Go ahead, Blake. Why do you think the First Nations Olympic bid is going to be uh, garnered with so much praise? Because both of these organizations, the IOC and FIFA, have to go about things doing uh, doing things di- differently. This Beijing Olympics is going to prove a disaster uh, PR-wise for the IOC. They can't do things like this. They have to start thinking more socially when they arrive in these locations. Qatar is going to be a disaster for FIFA as well. They can't think like this anymore. They know it. And doing things responsibly, like going to venues that are already built, no white elephants here. There is no risk. Yeah, you see, the, the Olympics are a huge gamble. You're building facilities that could potentially be white elephants. That's the danger of the Olympics. 
a World Cup in a building that's already been renovated, where the turf is the only expense that's added, that is plug-and-play, that is easy, and it is a very little cost to the taxpayer. Okay. There's no gamble. Actually, the, the, the terms of the original offer said a pair of natural turf surfaces, so we're not sure that it's limited to the single venue. But I think this idea that things are going to be different because they've been so consistently bad and corrupt, I I don't see you trying to defend FIFA as non-corrupt or not producing massive budgetary overruns. 11.6 billion in Brazil, 9.1 billion in Russia. FIFA has a track record. And effectively, the argument you're you're making is that, oh, these events have consistently been way over budget. Therefore, they're going to change now, especially just for us. We got a minute. Uh, Blake, Blake, you got 30 seconds to respond there. Let me wrap it up. FIFA knows that uh, it has a shady path. They just uh, paid out $201 million in compensation for uh, fraud in years gone by. They know that they will not have hosts in democratic first world countries if they continue down this road. They can't go back into places like Brazil and China and expect that the rest of the world is just going to go along with it. They know they have to change their ways, and, and coming to Canada and the U.S. is a perfect way to change their ways.